When I was just eight years old, I had to testify in court against my paternal grandfather for sexual assault. I remember walking through the courtroom to the witness box and seeing my grandpa's cowboy hat on the table where he sat with his two high-powered attorneys. There was the clock on the wall that I stared at while I answered questions that no eight-year-old should ever have to answer. I still recall the disappointing outcome of him being found not guilty. Reconciliation is absolutely not right for every incest survivor. I mean, it's wrong for many people that in many instances, having distance and safety from the person who would still be emotionally devastating to you is the best choice you could make. This is Recognize Our Power, and I'm Kelly Wallace. I'm grateful to be speaking to our guest today, Laura Davis. She is the author of The Burning Light of Two Stars, winner of the Book Life Prize for Best Memoir of 2021, The Courage to Heal, and four other groundbreaking books. In addition to writing books that inspire, the work of Laura's heart is to teach. For more than 20 years, she's helped people find their voices, tell their stories, and hone their craft. Laura has been published in Publishers Weekly, Writer's Digest, Crime Reads, Brevity, and The New York Times, featured in the Los Angeles Review of Books, and has been an engaging guest on Queerty, Right-Minded, the only one in the room, and dozens of other podcasts. She's been a featured speaker for the National Association of Memoir Writers and a popular craft teacher at the San Miguel Writers Conference. You can learn more about her workshops and read the first five chapters of her memoir at www.lauradavis.net. Hi, Laura. So glad to have you here. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with your background, can you briefly share for us a little bit about your growing up? I grew up in New Jersey on the East Coast. In the the backdrop of my childhood was the 60s and early 70s, so I was very influenced by that era. I came from a my my father was a teacher, so education was very important in my house. My mother taught nursery school. She did a bunch of different things. She eventually went to school. Uh, back to school and got her master's in social work. Mm. So I was raised by a couple of uh, progressive Jews on the East Coast who were not religious, Mm -hmm. but believed in social justice, Mm -hmm. who loved creativity. My father was a musician and a music teacher. And so I grew up with a a baby grand piano in our living room with like 20 different instrument cases underneath. My mother was was an actor in community theater. So I grew up running around costume closets and climbing on the catwalks to set the lights with my dad, who did a lot of the tech. So there was a lot of, and I was always read to, uh, we sang a lot. There was a lot of creativity in my household. So that was the, I think, positive part Mm -hmm. of my upbringing. When we did, I think, I just had my brother visiting me. He's the last surviving member of my nuclear family. And we were talking about how much our family made us love nature. We were out on a hike and and how, what an incredible pleasure that has been for us all our lives. So It's interesting, the older I get, the more I'm able to focus on many of the positives of my upbringing, as opposed to the more traumatic (laughs) events that happened. Uh, So it's it's interesting. And it's not about, um, I'm not denying anything or pushing it away. It's just that I feel like I've integrated 
the the negatives to the point that I'm much more able to see the the um, positive aspects and the the growth that I've achieved. That's fantastic. I think that's so important, especially you know, as survivors, because so much of our lives, the focus can be on the negative, but definitely, you know, looking at all the positives, the hiking, the music, so important to to look at. So you mentioned the positives, what were some of the negatives to your, to your growing up experience? Well, I think the biggest things that influenced me in terms of like things I've had to have shaped shaped my personality, my personality structure, and, and the things I've really had to heal from. One has nothing to do with sexual abuse. It was the fact that I was a preemie, mm-hmm. and I had a twin sister who died at birth. And I think maybe identical twin. And I think maybe more than that. And my mother named her, which I'm very grateful for. Um, her name is Vicky. And I think the loss of that twin, that of uh, this like person who was closer to me than we were shaped in the womb together and then to lose her. And then I was in a little incubator called an isolate for six weeks where I was never touched. I think the trauma of my birth was really significant in shaping me and my nervous system in so many ways. So that was one. The second is that my grandfather, my mother's father, sexually abused me starting when I was, I think, about three years old. And it went on for a number of years. And so that was going on. And I never told anyone, like, most kids. And I just dissociated uh, by imagining that I was going out. It was it happened in New York City in the tenement where they lived. They were very poor. They were immigrants. And the there was a clothesline out the window. And I would just imagine myself like sailing out on that clothesline. And there was a light on the wall. And I would just imagine disappearing into that light on the wall. And then in the morning, I just would never remember what had happened. So I was I was one of the survivors who blocked out the abuse. And I didn't remember it until I was in my, I think I was 27 years old. And it was in the context of my first, first time I was really deeply in love. And I, once intimacy and sexuality were combined, these memories started coming up. So that was the second thing. And I think the third is that uh, my mother uh, was an incredibly intense, dramatic character who you know, she was like the sun and the world revolved around her. And, and she expected me to be a planet revolving around her. And, and in reality, I was my own son. She gave birth to a powerhouse. <laughs> and so we, we started having really intense conflict. Um, not when I was really young, because I was docile, you know, and I basically was doing what she wanted. But when I hit puberty, and I started breaking all her rules and and not being the daughter she wanted. We just got into some very intense conflict. And and whatever I did in my life, she saw as something I was doing to thwart her, to hurt her, to wound Mm. her, to destroy her. She's a drama queen. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, she and I had a very, very volatile relationship. And it, it was made worse by a number of choices. When I was 23, I came out as a lesbian. She said, you've confirmed my worst fear about you, you know, and and she recovered from that. Within a few years, she kind of came around and became a real supporter. But her initial response was really negative. And, Mm. and then when I finally told her about what her her father had done to me when I was 28, I think, uh, Mm. it, it just, you know, she basically just chose her dead father over her living daughter and you know, mm-hmm. said I was making it up to destroy her. And and it, it led to a very, very deep, prolonged estrangement between the mm-hmm. two of us. And so 
the thing about my mother, I've been thinking a lot about her. She's been dead eight years now, and, and this week would have been her 95th birthday. Oh, wow. So she's been on my mind. And in many ways, whether we were in communication or not in communication, she was always so prominent in my psyche and in my consciousness. Like mm. even the years I set a boundary and would not speak to her and wouldn't have anything to do with her, I thought about her all the time. So she just was a huge, huge impact on my life. I mean, I <laughs> I just spent 10 years writing a memoir about our relationship, <laughs> you know, which is pretty indicative of the the psychic space she took up in my head and how much I still needed to work out about our very dramatic tumultuous relationship, which I would say ultimately ended up being somewhat redemptive in the end. Mm. So yeah, I think that's what I would say were the main influences on me, aside from just the culture and the the, why don't we do it in the road and the drugs and the hippies and I was in a cult for a while. I mean, I just was very influenced by the times I grew up in. Right. So I, th- I think that's that's sort of your basic answer of like the yeah. shape, the forces that shape me. And I, I'll just say one more thing about the sexual abuse, since that's your focal point, is that at the point when I remembered the abuse, so in my late 20s, which is almost 40 years ago for me, uh, it was all I could identify with. I mean, I, that I was an incest survivor was the most dominant thing in my life. It was, I saw it as the reason for everything about me and who I was and how I was in the world. It was all I thought about pretty much morning, noon, and night. I was having Mm. flashbacks. I was just, I was estranged from my mother's whole side of the family. It was just Mm. such a devastating, you know, in The Courage to Heal, the book I wrote with Ellen Bass, we called it The Emergency Phase. And I really remembered that time of really intense crisis and intense therapy and and it was really important for me to do all of that. But now, if you were going to ask me who I am, I don't even think I would put incest survivor on the list. Not because I'm not one and not because I'm denying anything, but because there are so many other aspects of who I am and who I have developed to be that really dominate over that. And it's right. it's certainly part of like, it's part of the fabric of the cloth that shaped me. Mm-hmm. And it will always have an influence on me. And I think there's always a certain vulnerability in certain areas of my life when I'm, especially if I'm going through a hard time, like someone dies and I'm grieving or just dealing with aging or loss, those things come back to be dealt with again. Right. But it's just so different. It's just not, it's not, I would never lead with that Yeah. as an identity. In mm-hmm. fact, there was a point where I had to just walk away from that identity because I, I didn't, I didn't want my whole life to be determined and based on the abuse I'd experienced as a child. And and I just made a decision that I was going to be who I was today and I was going to take responsibility for my mistakes, my failings, my weaknesses, all of it, my strengths, without it all being connected to the fact that I was an abuse survivor. That, that happened when I was in my, or I think in my 30s. And, mm. I, and so, you know, that was a big change in my life. It was like, the, that identity felt, started feeling like a sweater that had gotten too tight. And yeah. I, needed, I needed to take it off and say, well, who am I if everything I am is not connected to that trauma? Right, right, right. And I think that's just like a testament to where you are in your process. So for you, what does it mean to keep growing decades <laughs> after the initial healing from the trauma that took place? 
for me, it's it's usually always about moving from my head to my heart. I can get really caught in doing and being obsessive, working obsessively and living from my head and not just traveling deep into my body and moving more from a, my core. So, and, and for me, it's always about becoming more open-hearted and more capable of deep love and compassion and instead of being caught in a list of things to do. So that, yes. I mean, that's always my, that's always the challenge for me. It's, I'll probably work on that till the day I die. And I have times where I'm much more successful than others and other times where I get like really caught up in habitual patterns. So yeah, I think that's, that's the main thing it means for me to grow. And, and uh, lately I've been thinking a lot about busyness. You know, this busyness was something that was a coping method and also I feel like modeled by my mother just intensely. It was like, I feel like that's what I got with my mother's milk was the value of being a busy, important person mm. and yeah. doing, 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 doing. And I feel like I'm always going to struggle against that. But so I'm, I'm just trying to create more spaciousness in my life yeah. and more time to, to be more time in nature, more time to swim, more time out hiking with my dog, with my partner and it's it's remains a challenge for me to create more balance because I feel like that's one of the coping methods I've used all my life to be to be someone and to make myself into someone. It's like, what if I don't want to be that person? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, and I think that's a very common response with a lot of survivors is to just be busy, 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 just filling that space constantly just to I don't know I almost look at it as a way to redeem myself yeah and my value as a human but definitely like it sounds like you've created that spaciousness in your life to do things like hiking and you're actively working on it you're listening to recognize our power I'm Kelly Wallace and we're talking with Laura Davis so in your story there are there are a number of times that you have to face up to the truth about yourself, not just the truth about your mother. Can you tell us about one or two of those times? Yeah, I think that was a big thread I wanted in the, the burning light of two stars, the memoir. I, for me, that was a really important narrative thread, which is my ability to face the truth about myself. Because I, I never wanted to write a vendetta. You know, I didn't want this was about mm. the mother-daughter relationship. I never wanted my mother to be the villain and for me to be the hero and for it to be like, look what you did to me. It's like I had no interest in writing a book like that for revenge or anything else. I really wanted to create something with two flawed human characters who are struggling over a lifetime to find their way back to each other. You know, that's basically... And, and, and to answer the question, when my mother got old, could I caretake a parent who had betrayed me in the past? That's yes. the question the book asks and answers, at mm. least in my case. So part of that, like the early drafts, I was definitely the hero and my mother was the villain. And I, I knew I had to get beyond that. It's part of why it took me 10 years to write this book. And I have a, a friend who's a writing coach, and she read some of my early pages and really trashed them quite intensely. Mm -hmm. And one of the things she said was, she said to me, Laura, this is not the courage to heal. This is the courage to reveal. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I put that I put that on my wall. Wow. And, and it's the courage to reveal. And I mean, I was devastated by her feedback at the time, but after a few months I got back into the book and I I really started thinking about that and and wanting to reveal more and so here's one example. 
there's a scene in the book where my mother, the, you know, the kind of the basic storyline, the book kicks off where she's 80 years old. We're living across the country from each other. That 3,000 miles of distance has created a buffer, which has allowed us to have, I would say, like a cordial, a, a decent relationship compared to the total estrangement we had for a really long time. Yes. Um, but the, I think one of the essential ingredients for me in having a relationship is the distance between us and, and having the control that that distance gives me to, of boundaries and everything. Because she still was very intense uh, and could volatile and all kinds of things. But she calls me when she's 80 and announces she's moving to my town of Santa Cruz, California from New Jersey to live out the rest of her life. And I guess I could have said no, but I said yes. And I think in part it was thinking about what kind of daughter do I want to be for this aging mother? And some of it, I think, and I was really scared about her coming. I mean, scared is way too mild. I was terrified. I was like just so anxious about the whole thing and trying to control everything about it. But part of me was really wondering would it be possible for, we'd, we'd done a certain amount of healing in this relationship. Would it be possible for us to heal the rest of the way before she died? Right. And I think that's why I said yes. And, and, mm. and then the book really takes place during the next, I think it was like seven years until she died, mm. when I did become her caregiver. And and everything that put me through and how it just brought up all the, the stuff from the far past about the incest and her father. And it just brought up so much. And so during those years, she was living independently for a while. She had her own, in a mobile home park, she had a mobile home. And I was really convinced that she wasn't safe because she was developing dementia and that she shouldn't be living alone. And so I had this list. I'm really into lists. I had this list of like reasons mom can't live alone. And I would sit there and polish it and like add to it all the time. And it would be like, I found three pills sitting on the counter. You know, the, the mm. burner was left on. The, you know, I don't remember what was on it. But it was, you know, there was just a list of all this evidence. I was gathering evidence against her. And I was doing that one day uh, at our dining room table. And my partner, Karen, came up. And she looked over my shoulder. And she basically said, you know, what the hell are you doing, Laura? Mm. And I said, I'm proving that she can't live alone. And she said, why aren't you making a list of her strengths? Why are you making a list of her weaknesses? And she said, you're always, you're always putting her in a future that hasn't arrived yet. It's just pretty intense confrontation. Yes. This is one of the scenes in the book. And I, my first response was to be defensive, which is how I respond when I'm confronted. But then I, I went to the beach later that day and I went for walking by myself and I realized she was right. And that, that I had been, from the time I was young, I was always creating a vendetta against my mother. I was always stockpiling all the evidence of her failures and how she had betrayed me. And, and it's not that those things weren't true, but my mother in particular had a lot of really good qualities also. And I never paid attention to the things she was doing right or the way she actually did support me as a mother. And so that was a real, that was like an example of one of these times where I had to look at myself and like, why, what was my investment in doing that? And in, in always gathering this evidence of her failures. And from that point on, I began to shift my perspective towards her and also in what I paid attention to and what I emphasized, what I carried forward, what I would mm. report to other people. And it, it just made a huge difference. So that's one example. 
I also, I document, you know, a time I completely lost it as a caregiver because I think, I think that happens with people and people feel so much shame about it. And I wanted to just say, this is, this is how it is. This is how hard it is to take care of someone with dementia. And uh, this is how I lost it. And this is how I dealt with it. And this is what I learned from it. And so there, you know, I really made a point of as much as I could bringing out those things where I was not at my best or I was at my worst. Um, and I, I feel like it's important to share those things. I, a lot of caregivers read this book and I want them to, to mm. um, feel like it's safe for them to be able to tell the real truth. You know, I have, I teach writing. That's what I do for a living. And I, I often tell my, my retreat students or my weekly students, you know, what's the story under the story? You know, yes. or what's the part you never told anyone before? Yes. Because we, we often have a, a kind of superficial story. We roll out of this is the way things are. And it's almost like, like a, a groove in a record, you know. And what would it be like not to do that? So I try to get to what's the real truth. And that's what I wanted to do in this book. And that's what I'm always encouraging my writing students to do. Because that's the writing that really grabs people is when you really tell the truth. And it, it, you tell the real truth, not like that this is going to make me look good or here's where I'm the hero and I'm going to repeat the same story I've told a million times before. Yeah. yeah. I think you really have to be able to tell someone's humanity. You have to be able to tell, you know, the experience of their growing up as well. Yes. So your mom's mind began to fail in the final years of her life. How did her dementia impact your reconciliation process? It had a lot of impact. I mean, it was complicated. The whole thing was so complicated. I think the first thing that was more challenging was that the symptoms of dementia really mirrored her worst qualities mm -hmm. that maybe had been like at bay a little bit. You know, like she'd, she'd gotten oh, to I be see. on better behavior with me because of all the work we'd done together. But she became volatile. Um, she mm. would, you know, become enraged. She... Mm. Uh, was very demanding. She was incredibly anxious. She would say things that weren't true. And so mm. it brought back memories of all these years of being gaslit by her. And so it, it, mm. it, I was so triggered into the past. So that was the first way it affected me. And so I, I got, was triggered so much, I had to get back into therapy during that period of time because yeah. I was struggling with differentiating the relationship from the far past from the relationship now with this elderly mother who really didn't have any control over me. I had, I had the control. So that was the first thing that really made a big difference. And I think the second thing was that her personality began to change. And she, as she became more dependent, you know, as her dementia progressed, she was no longer the, the volatile, angry, intense, I used to call her devouring. I used to think of her as like this spider trying to devour me. She she wasn't mm. that person anymore. She actually, I worried a lot that she would turn much more, like her qualities would get worse, her personality would get worse, but she turned sweet. And she, yes. I would come into her room, she was in assisted living at this point, and she would, she would be sitting in her chair looking like she was dead. I mean, she would just like, her mouth would be open. And I would just think, oh my God, this is how she's going to look when she's dead. And her hearing aids would be on the floor, teeth would be out. And I would, I would walk in the door and I would just want to immediately flee. 
And yet I would make myself go in that room because I would have looked forward to seeing her all day, but the reality of who she was was so challenging. And I would go in and, and she would just like start to wake up from this kind of stupor she was in and her eyes would be kind of unfocused. And the moment she saw me, her eyes would like get focused and this huge beaming smile would come across her face and she would just say, you're the best daughter in the whole world. You know, or she'd say, Laurie, I'm so glad you're here. This is the best part <laughs> of my day. You know, and, she, and then she would be funny too. She would say things like, we, Karen and I have, um, I have an older son and then Karen and I have two children together. And she would just say, your children are the best children in the whole world. She said, who said lesbians shouldn't have children? So she was, she, she, this, she would just beam this love at me that I had craved my entire life. I had wanted, and, and I, it was such a mixed blessing for me because she wasn't, who was she? She was a shell of who she had been. She wasn't the mother I had always known. And yet all that was left was love. Yes. And I, so I feel like I was quite lucky to have had her because that's not a guarantee at all when someone has dementia. And I, so I had a few years of this incredibly loving presence. And it was like the love had been there underneath all the dysfunction all along. And I think I had always sensed that. And, and I think perhaps that's why I fought so hard to reestablish a relationship with her. I don't think it was just like we were mm -hmm. codependent with each other. I felt like there was a, there was a, there was a spiritual connection between us, like a very incredible bond. But also, I think I had she had genuinely really loved me, and I had genuinely loved her, although I wouldn't let myself admit it or feel it, you know, because I, had, I always felt I had to protect myself. But it was during those last years mm -hmm. of her life that I, for the first time, was able to feel completely safe around her. And it was ironic, to put it mildly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think what essential elements made the reconciliation possible or impossible well on an earlier you know when I was younger I think you know and I think everyone is different you know I wrote a whole book on reconciliation called I thought right. we'd never speak again that I wrote you know 20 years ago about the process of reconciliation it wasn't really about my mother right. and I and Yes. So everyone's process is different. And I think it's really important for me to say, especially for those who read The Courage to Heal and are listening to me as an authority of some kind, is that reconciliation is absolutely not right for every incest survivor. I mean, it's wrong for many people that in many instances, having distance and safety from the person who would still be emotionally devastating to you is the best choice you could make. So I don't want anyone to think I'm saying this is a path for everyone. It just was the path for me that was right for me. Right. And I think in my case, the first thing I needed was separation. I needed to create very strong boundaries and so that I had freedom and the space to develop my own autonomy and to heal from the mm. abuse I had suffered and to heal from the damage of my relationship with her and to gain the strength of self that I would have a self to even consider whether reconciliation was something I wanted. And I needed that for years. So that was the first thing I needed. And then there was a lot of, a lot of trial and error. There was a lot of boundary setting. We had a relationship for years in letters because we couldn't, I couldn't tolerate seeing her in person. It just was way too volatile. So 
I got to a point where I had healed enough from the sexual abuse that my need for her to believe me and to validate me just it it really diminished and then it went away. Like I I really I was able to accept that this man was her father. He probably mm-hmm. had sexually abused her. I mean, I I never knew that for sure, but it's it was an easy assumption to make. I could act as if that was the case and that she was not capable of dealing with it. And that in in the reality is in part she engendered in me the strength to face something and the courage to face something that she didn't have the strength and courage to face. It's like, you know, I think, I don't know if you're a parent, but, you know, you always want your parents to, like, you want to kick the ball down the field. You want you want them to be healthier, more stable. And I really wanted to try to avoid my kids being traumatized. And, of course, there's a lot of ways you can't prevent that. But in the ways I did have control about over, I was able to protect them. And... So I I got to a point where I didn't need her validation. And I think she got to a point where she no longer was demanding that I recant and say it hadn't happened. So we we agreed to disagree. So there's this like huge, basically turd in the middle of the room, which was, did this happen or didn't it? And I got to a point where I was able to walk away from that and really think, in what other ways... Hmm could this relationship serve me? And and what are the ways we could actually genuinely connect with pleasure? And it was little things like we both love the movies. We would go to the movies. We both love the theater. We would go to the theater. We love to play cards together from the time I was a little girl. So we would play cards. It was a place we both could relax mm-hmm. around each other. And just little yes. things, we started to rebuild new tendrils of connection that were not about this huge conflict and not about the past. It was about what we could enjoy in the present. I just had this this experience just yesterday. Uh, my brother, who's my only surviving relative, came down for a visit. And uh, I had not let him visit me for the last few years because he is an anti-vaxxer and I'm vaccinated. Oh. And I, I not only didn't want to be around him, I was feeling punitive about his choice and I wanted to punish mm-hmm. him, you know, basically. And I just didn't feel mm-hmm. safe. But at this point, I realized he's my last surviving relative and that as we get older, our siblings can become very important to us. And so I invited him for the weekend to come down for the weekend. With him. He has a new girlfriend I had never met. And they came and spent the weekend. And there were a lot of like rabbit holes we could have gone down where I could have gotten right back into that kind of judgmental, I don't like the way you think about this. I disagree with you about this. And I just made a choice over and over all weekend to focus on the things we could really enjoy together, you know, and we both love the outdoors. We went on two, one incredible hike in the Redwood Forest, and we went on another huge long walk on the beach. I live in a beautiful place, you know, and we had a great visit. I think it was the best visit we've had in many years. And a lot of it was just my decision that I was going to focus on the positive and that I was not going to get caught into this old pattern of feeling so judgmental and harsh towards him. And in, in yes. part, I learned that from practicing with my mother. And I, I'm not sure I would be able to do it in all instances. Like, we, he and I still have enough in common that there's enough ground. I just see people struggling with family relationships all, you know, so much around politics and yes. th- this divisiveness. And so, you know, I'm still practicing that. And I feel like that's... That's a secret to reconciliation is find the places where you can connect and build your relationship around that. And then you you really have to give up being right. I mean, as a friend of mine once said to me, Laura, being right is the loneliest place in the world. 
and mm-hmm. I had to give up being right. Mm-hmm. And I there's a there's a quote I I use in the book, and I think it's in the front or in the it's somewhere as an epigraph. And I've I've quoted all the time to my writing students is that every time I look in the rearview mirror, the past has changed. And mm-hmm. you know, at this stage of my life, I just look at things differently than I did before. And it's not that I was wrong before; it's just that I have I've gone through a process of evolution, and I feel like aging has softened a lot of my perspectives. I used to be much more demanding of people and I could feel betrayed at the drop of a hat. And now I just can let things go more. Um, not every time, but I could right. just be, it's like, this is a human being. This is, this is just how they are. And I could, I could, I could approach more of a sense of almost amusement or compassion or, and look at my own foibles, you know. Some of the best conversations I have in my family or with my kids, they're adults now when they visit, will be like, they'll be teasing me about mm. some aspect of my personality. Like, if something comes up to do, I have to do it immediately. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and now I could laugh <laughs> about that and they could laugh about it. We all laugh about it. And the feeling is love. The feeling is not judgment or harshness. So, I, you know, for me, this is a lifelong path. And part of that path for me is being able to learn to apologize, which is something I never could do. Mm. You know, it's still my first reaction if I get confronted is I didn't do it. But then I le- I've learned to come back and say, you know, I'm really sorry, you were right. And that's been like saying yeah. that has been uh, an incredibly difficult thing to say. And, yeah. But you know, I've gotten better at it and I continue to get better at it. It's fantastic. <laughs> You're listening to Recognize Our Power. I'm Kelly Wallace. I'm talking with Laura Davis. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to Recognize Our Power. My guest is Laura Davis. So coming out the other side of writing this book, the burning light of two stars what were some of the big takeaways that you had or the the aha moments from writing this book well i think the most exciting part for me was that i had to really grow as a writer you know i this is my mm-hmm. seventh book i've sold two million mm-hmm. books i have memoir right. yes so i had to learn so many things that i didn't know about storytelling and i've been teaching writing for 25 years and so to be up against so many things I didn't know was really hard. And it was also thrilling to learn those skills. You know, I ended up hiring a great coach who really taught me everything about I know now about story. And and the result is a book that people can't put down. And I, I, that's what I wanted. I wanted something very readable. I didn't just want to, I wanted it to be a really well-written book. And I, I love that people say, you know, they were really touched by the story or they cried or it made them think about their aging parents or their healing or whatever. But what I really love is someone who says, I picked it up and I couldn't put it down, you know, or I couldn't believe how well written this book was. It's a really good book. That that makes me feel super happy. So so that's one thing about it is that I I had to really stretch and learn a whole new set of skills to write it the way I wanted to write it. And I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is that if I was going to write that book today, you know, it's only been out one year. So it's, it's a pretty new book, but it took me 10 years to write it. And yes, I would write a different book. I mean, it, it not a totally different book, but that 
I think the thing that's been the most surprising, which is really not about the book, it's about my relationship with my mother, is that it continues to evolve. After, like I said, it was just her birthday, so I've been thinking about her this week, and yes, I'm my relationship with her keeps changing, and it it only gets more positive. And I think part of that yes. is it's a lot easier to have a relationship with someone who's dead. <laughs> I mean, realistically, you know, you're not. I'm not dealing with the trigger of being around her. And the way I get triggered or the way she would get yes. triggered from me and the, the difficulties in the relationship. So I'm able to get this much broader view, like of her whole lifetime, not just as my mother, but she was also a daughter. She was a granddaughter. She was the child of immigrants. She grew up impoverished in New York City in a tenement. She was an actor. She grew yes. up at a time when there were only so many choices for women. And she was, when I think of who she, what, who she was and what she did and the courage she showed in her life, she was an amazing person. I, I just couldn't really see that because all I could focus on was how she was as my mother. And I probably, of anyone in her life, I probably had mm. the most difficult relationship with her was the mother-daughter relationship. So I, I think that's, that's one thing is just how our perspective continues to change. And that's why sometimes a student will come to me with something they wrote 10 years ago or they wrote over... 10 years. And first of all, their writing has gotten much better. And you can't just take the, all those old pieces and put yes. them together. You, you really have to use them as, I tell them, put it, you, this is mulch for what you're going to write now. You can't just like <laughs> make an edit here and make an edit there and put these things together and think you have a book. You have to be willing to yes. tell the story from yes. who you are right now, especially if it's a memoir, because a memoir is not just what happened to you. It's your perspective and insight about what happened to you now. That's what makes it a memoir. And it's not just this happened and then this happened yes. and then this happened and then this happened. That's not very interesting to read. So I learned a lot about writing. Exactly. And I, it's, I think it's dramatically improved my teaching because of everything I learned. Um, and I, again, I was reminded that you can't control what happens with a book either. You can't make it you can't make it sell. You can't make it succeed. You can't determine the response to it. You just, it becomes this thing you put out in the world that's fully grown and it has its own life that you can't control. I mean, you could give it a launch. You can put us, I put a lot of time, energy, and money into launching this book, but I can't control where it goes and who reads it and any of that. Um, the, I can't control the outcome. The outcome. But those are. Yeah. I, and I feel really proud of it. I mean, I, I've been thinking about it a lot because it was published exactly a year ago. So it's its birthday. And oh, wow. when I look at it, I feel really proud of the story. And I mean, just this weekend, my brother's girlfriend was here and she picked it up. It was so fun for me because she, she couldn't put it down. And she was like, oh, my God, what do these numbers mean? And what's the <laughs> and she was like, I can't believe this scene. And of course, she's more interested because my brother is a character in the book and she's in love with him. But but it, it was more yes, than that. And so right, it was super right. fun for me to get to witness a reader uh, firsthand reading this book and their, their reactions to it. And that was really, really fun because usually this is all happening at a distance. You don't get that kind of that kind of input. Yes. <laughs> So a lot of our listeners may be in the early stages of, of wanting to start writing their story out. What words of advice or what words of wisdom would you offer to people that are just starting out and wanting to write their story? Well, I think the first thing is to write it for yourself. I think writing is incredibly therapeutic. 
And I, when I was remembering my incest and in those early years, I wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages in notebooks, none of which ever saw the light of day. But it was, for me, writing was a tool, a, a, yeah. one of the most critical tools in my healing process. You know, I did therapy, I did body work, I did a lot of different things. But for me, writing was always primary. So I would say first, write the story for you so that you can tell the truth on the page. So that's the first thing. And I think there's a difference between just writing it in a journal and letting it kind of fester in there and sharing it out. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I only teach people in groups because I think that having your words witnessed is really like what completes the circuit. So I would say at a minimum, read what you've written out loud to yourself. Yes. That's the first thing. And then maybe you have a trusted person yes. like a therapist that you could read to or another survivor or a sibling that's supportive. Or, But be very careful about who you share it with. It has to be someone who's really trustworthy, right. uh, both of your confidence and also is not going to start telling you, well, I don't remember it that way. That's not what you can't say that about mom or I, one time I made the mistake of going in and sharing an early chapter of this book with my wife, Karen, who I don't share my writing with right. in process. And, and I, but I was super excited. I walked in the house one day. I said, can I just read you this one thing? You know? And she said, okay. And I read it to her and she just looked at me. She said, are you sure you don't just want revenge? <laughs> it's like, I didn't, that was it for six months for me. I didn't. So you have to be careful and know who you're reading, but it's, it's really powerful to be witnessed. Um, and in my groups, yes. people don't respond. They're not, I mean, I run classes that are critique groups, you know, where people are getting feedback to make their writing better. Right. But I think when you're, when you're writing as a healing process, what you really want is someone who's just going to listen and receive your writing and honor it. And also when we say the words yes. out loud, they impact us in another way. So often someone will write something, it may not feel as emotional, but when they go to read it out loud, a lot of emotion, a lot of crying will happen. I think the second thing is that if you're going to write about incest or sexual abuse, you have to be careful because writing can bring up really strong feelings. It's easy to get flooded or overwhelmed and that you need to create a container for that mm -hmm. writing and that it's not always the right path for someone at all times. So, you know, when I teach a retreat, I have a handout I give everyone about how do you create safety for writing your own writing practice. And, you know, some of the Brilliant. The, the key yeah. things, I mean, like, I know people who are, you know, they'll only write and read to their therapist, for instance, because that creates a, a container for it. Yes. Or, you know, one thing is set a mm -hmm. timer for 10 minutes and just write for 10 minutes and have a little ritual as you go into that. And it, what what's going to work for one person is going to be triggering for someone else. So there's not one way to do this, but some people might light a candle or they might sit in a particular spot or they might create an altar or they might do all kinds of things and it, you would know for yourself what might be the right thing but to to basically say i'm taking i'm stepping out of my monday in life and i'm making a sacred time to write and my intention is to heal so, and then if you set a timer you know there's an end point to the writing and not to sandwich it between picking your kids up at school and a meeting like to give yourself space yes <laughs> so that this is part of a healing practice it's not something you're trying to like squeeze in and then you have to look at how does it feel after you write you know if you if writing is really overwhelming and bringing up too much too fast then it might not be the time to do it and one other thing is that that you can use prompts to open things up to write about 
I mean, I wouldn't give this prompt generally, but you know, I'm just as an example. Like you could say, you know, tell me about a moment yes. you were betrayed. You know, I mean, I think that that could be maybe a therapeutic prompt, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't give that to a a writing group because it's just like triggering too much. But let's say you have a prompt that's bringing yes. up a lot of difficult material. You could follow it with a prompt like, what gives me strength? Or what brings me joy? Or tell me about a time someone was really there for you. So you can use prompts not just to uncover, but also to build your own strength. So these are some of the basics that I recommend for someone. And I think initially your writing has to be for you. And I think I always really recommend that people don't be focused on a product. I think a lot of times people feel like, if I'm going to write, I have to write a book. Or, you know, everyone always told me my book, my story would help other people. Well, that may be the case, but begin with what writing can do for you. There's a, I'll just say there's a, um, I have on my website at lauradavis.net. If you join my mailing list, I have a, a book called Writing Through Courage, a 30-Day Practice. And it's a really nice ebook. And it gives the basics of writing practice. It talks about safety. It talks about how to do this writing. And then there's 30 either quotes or prompts that are writing suggestions. So that's a really great place to begin. And I think it, it would cover what I just said and a lot more. Plus, give you a way to start a writing practice. And they're, they're really great prompts that could lead you in a lot of different directions. It doesn't, I don't think that talks so much about the, the prompts for healing or for consolidation, but I just gave you some of those. Yeah. Thank you so much. Wow, what a great <laughs> conversation. And thank you so much for your time today. I, I really appreciate it. I'll link in the show notes to all of your socials and website. And to find out more about our podcast, please follow us on Facebook, TikTok and Instagram or visit our website www.recognizeourpower.com. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. If you have an extra few seconds, please leave us a review to help the algorithm. I'd like to thank my guest today. Be sure to check out our show notes and website, www.recognizeourpower.com. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. This podcast is produced by Three Wire Creative.